People of God, Christmas at Covenant Presbyterian Church is a very, very special time in which we together focus actually for the entire month of December upon the incarnation of our Lord. And we have our wonderful worship services on Sundays, and we have had really the kind of big events for Christmas, which is our lessons and carols. And I always view Christmas Eve as a a quieter family gathering in which we quietly open the Word before going into the bustle of Christmas Eve with our families. When some of you will, uh, with great difficulty, be putting together bicycles after having with more difficulty gotten your children to actually go to sleep, and maybe some of you ladies get a call from Aunt Lulu that she's coming for Christmas dinner after all and you weren't expecting her, and all of the busyness and the hubbub comes. And before we come back tomorrow, for we are very privileged this year that Christmas falls on the Lord's Day, and we come together and we celebrate the Supper of the Lord. But we are a people who believe that we should live under the book, and so we turn there this evening. Micah, the prophet Micah, chapter 5, with a focus on verse 2. Now, all of our readings tonight are from the authorized version, the old King James but you will have no problem following along in your ESV. Will you pray with me? Father, it is a special time indeed when we can turn to your word, no matter when that time may be, but especially as we consider that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human nature in order that he might be our Savior. And as we desire to live under this word, as I have often prayed and often preached, Father, help each of us, and especially this minister, to remember that if we do not stay in your word, if we are not steeped in it, we will be radically deceived. And we gather here on this peaceful evening, and we know that many of our brothers and sisters around the world cannot gather in a peaceful service of worship. And if they do, they do so knowing that they may not leave that service because of persecution knowing not what will happen, but trusting you, they worship nonetheless. We are privileged, no matter what our needs may be, no matter what the difficulties are that we face, we know Christ, and we have him, and he has us, and nothing and no one can take us from him. Now may your spirit open the word to us that our hearts may be taught, and that we may once again marvel at the incarnation of our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand? We will read the first three verses of Micah chapter 5 with a focus on verse 2. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel." The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Times were dark for God's people when Micah the prophet wrote. 
Micah prophesied in an apparently hopeless age. Ahaz the king offered his children to the false god Moloch. Hezekiah was a reformer, but very few followed his reforms from the heart. And in the midst of that darkness and in the midst of a message of judgment, here also is a message of hope within a book pronouncing that judgment. As the prophet telescopes way, way out into the future, 750 years before the Savior was born, this prophecy in verse 2 of Jesus' birth. It is an ancient message bright with hope in a hopeless age. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Will you think with me, first of all, of the place of the Messiah's birth? We are told 750 years beforehand that he would be born in Bethlehem. Remember the history of Bethlehem? It was dear to the heart of every Israelite because so much of redemptive history clustered together there. Rachel died in Bethlehem, giving birth to Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, but a greater man of sorrows would be born there than Ben-Oni. Naomi? Call me not Naomi pleasant, but call me Mara bitter. Yet through her hard circumstances, one of the most remarkable instances of God's providence would be wrought. Through the union of Ruth and Boaz would come Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the kingly ancestor of Christ who was born in Bethlehem. Ruth is really a Christmas story. So why did God bring about the birth in Bethlehem? Christ enters our history. He is David's greater son. He is the king. He rules and he reigns. And this is why Joseph and Mary must take the long journey to David's royal city. And this is why the angel says to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Do you know that king? Do you know the ruler prophesied, the Messiah prophesied in this passage of Scripture? Are you prepared for his next coming? But as we think about the place, notice the insignificance of his birthplace. Despite its place in God's plan, the world, to the world, Bethlehem is totally insignificant. Important to God, but insignificant to the world. Notice that it is little. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. It's not even mentioned in the list of the towns in Joshua 24. It's not big enough to have been mentioned in the list of the cities in Nehemiah 11. It's not big enough to be a municipal unit, really. Bethlehem is just a hole in the road. It's kind of like that little place outside of my hometown, Macon, Georgia. When you drive out of Macon, you go north just a little bit, you come to a place called Bolingbroke, and there's a sign that says, 42 people and one old grump. <laughs> that was Bethlehem, just a small, I don't know about the grump, <laughs> but it was just a little place indeed. Where would most of us expect the Son of God to be born? In London, in Paris, in some great place, and in some great day. Bethlehem is nowhere. 
And the insignificance of his birthplace speaks of the lowliness of Christ's birth. His lowly birth was not, first of all, an example to us. His lowly birth was, from the beginning, a descent into hell, into the hell of his sufferings in our place that would lead all the way to the cross. His birth points ahead to the terrible cost and also to the great love wherewith he loved us and demonstrated his love to us in the Savior's shed blood. So there he is in a tiny village, no room in the inn, born in a stable. Do you see why there is a significant change when we turn the page to the New Testament? And Matthew quotes Micah 5.2. Micah tells us that Bethlehem is insignificant. But the quotation is altered by divine inspiration by Matthew, who tells us that the place is significant. Why? Because Jesus was born there. We are small. We are insignificant in the eyes of the world. Who cares about Christ and who cares about Christians? Who cares about theology? Who cares about the Bible? The world doesn't care, but God has made us great in him. Are you not in union with this Christ? Do you not find your person defined by his person? Do not his perfections define us? Has he not given to us an inheritance that is undefiled and undefading that nothing and no one can take from us? Indeed, Bethlehem is significant because God made it so. Well, we've seen briefly the place of the Messiah's birth, something of its history, something of its insignificance. But will you note, secondly with me, the providence of Messiah's birth? Caesar Augustus, as we have heard again from Luke's gospel, makes a decree. Take a census. All who live elsewhere must travel to their birthplace to be registered. And I like to tease you with this almost every year in one way or another. Sure was lucky, wasn't it? Lucky that Caesar made the decree and made it just in time. Not a little later, not a little earlier, that Joseph and Mary must travel to Bethlehem so that the prophecy would be fulfilled, sure was lucky. That they must go just at the time when she is near giving birth so that she doesn't give birth earlier or later. Luck? No, my friend, no. We do not live in a chance universe. Never would you have had a Savior without divine providence, His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. The heart of the Lord, the heart of the King is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, He moveth it whithersoever He will. And the same God who arranged this, the same God who was in control of this, the same God of providence is the same God who can save your soul. And who can love you, Christian, through your hard circumstances? What doctrinal instruction is here? Augustus Caesar acted as he pleased. Yet, he was acting in accordance with absolute predestination. How many things seem to overwhelm believers? But these things are not by chance. What did Joseph and Mary know of God's decree? of God's governance and concurrence. What do you know? This we may know. In the great 
and in the small things, God reigns. You are in his hands. Go, take a census of the world, and God is in it. Spurgeon somewhere said, as I recall years ago reading, Caesar's whim was God's decree. You see, my friend, on this Christmas Eve, God is God. God is God. Let us not have low views of God, but let us have high biblical views of who God is. This God who rules, who reigns through thick and thin, through the hard things and the joyful times. So that Calvin says, gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things. Patience in adversity and also incredible freedom from worry about the future all necessarily flow from this knowledge, if you and I will but apply it to our hearts. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge that our God is the God of providence. Because you see, nothing is so benumbing as despair. Nothing is so stupefying, so paralyzing. But listen, long before there was a sinner there was a Savior. Long before you began with Christ, Christ began with you. Providence brought Christ to you and you to Christ. And the antidote to despair is the knowledge of God's providence and is a major theme of Christmas. Do you remember that illustration that I read to you just a week ago? Jonathan Edwards, speaking of the providence of God as we saw it in the genealogy, of Christ in Matthew, this long, large river that leads with all of these various tributaries to disgorge into the fulfillment of God's ultimate purpose. But when you see all of those tributaries, who would know that these things would end up there? You can't see through the valleys or over the mountains to know where they would go. You see all of the obstacles. You have no idea how it's going to happen. And not only that, but Edward says, also some of the tributaries run contrarywise to the long, large river. They seem to run this way, away from where they are to disgorge themselves into the fulfillment of God's providential plan. And that's the way it is with our lives too. We walk by faith and not by sight. But the day is coming in which all will be sight and we will be able to be completely, completely satisfied in the knowledge God has done all things well. We will look at circumstances that we face now that we cannot believe we're facing. What is this? What is God doing Is God in control? Yes, he is in control. And on that day, you will say, ah, now I understand. Now I see. Now I see how God glorified himself in it. Now I see what he is doing in my life, was doing in those days in order to make me the person he wanted me to be. Now I see how he was using that for his kingdom. And it may not be until then that you see. But I love that phrase of Flavel the Puritan about the providence of God. He said, the providence of God is like Hebrew. It must be read backward. And the day is coming in which we will read backward and we will see, oh yes, the long, long, large river of God's providence. And that's what's happening here as Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea. Will you take heart from that on Christmas Eve? Will you take that back into your homes and into the hardships that you face? 
Will you rejoice from the heart? Will you grieve perhaps, but not as those who have no hope? Because we are Christians, and we have a God who loves us, and a Savior who has saved us, and a Holy Spirit who indwells us. I ask you, will you take that to heart and be encouraged on this Christmas Eve and on your Christmas Day? Now we've seen the place of the Messiah's birth, the providence of Messiah's birth, but now, thirdly, the Messiah of whom Micah prophesies. Let's read verse 2 again. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So he is to be the ruler. Isaiah 9, the government will be upon his shoulders. You know, the believing remnant, the faithful few that read this passage or heard this passage from the prophet, how would they have heard it? They would have said, yes, Jerusalem will be raised. The professing church is an apostasy, but a ruler is coming through Bethlehem. God promises it. They did not altogether know what that meant, but by faith, they believed in the Christ by believing the promise. And what of us? Again, Calvin points out that Christ's birth in hard times and in an insignificant place provides an image of the condition of the entire church. Just as the son was born in Bethlehem, a town of insignificance, so the Lord will rescue his church whenever events become confused and chaotic and appear destined, appear destined for ruin. But he is also, most importantly, in this passage called the eternal God. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet unto me shall he come forth, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Similar language used in Proverbs 8, 22 and 23 of God's eternal wisdom. It means eternity. What happened at Bethlehem? I will tell you what happened. The infinite became finite. The eternal subject to time. The immortal became mortal. God became man. But I also love to heighten the mystery for us. I will tell you what happened in Bethlehem long ago. The infinite became finite without ceasing to be infinite. The eternal subject to time without ceasing to be eternal. The immortal became mortal without ceasing to be immortal. God became man without ceasing to be God. What does that mean? It means that for us and for our salvation, the eternal God came in the flesh. And so I ask, do you fear that somehow his cross will not save you, that your sin is too deep? Did you not hear? The eternal God became man and died. Do you think you can stretch your sin greater than his eternity? Can you stretch your sin greater than his infinity? Can you stretch your sin greater than his completely valuable sacrifice? Do you fear that his love will not last? Did you not hear? The eternal God became man. He's not a chameleon. Do you fear that maybe you will not make it to the end? Did not 
Christ signed the covenant of redemption in eternity past? Did he not agree to pay for you, believer, with his infinitely valuable blood? Is not your surety become man? Conclude then, he eternally keeps his own. My name from the palms of my hands, eternity cannot erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Oh, my friends, marvel, will you marvel? The perfect union of deity and humanity means that his sacrifice is of infinite value. And what can that accomplish? We'll just look at chapter 7 of Micah, verses 18 and 19. I will tell you what it accomplishes. Micah 7, 18 and 19 Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. If your trust is in Jesus Christ, our Lord then he has cast your sins into the depths of the sea. But I have one more thing to say, one more point from this text in this Christmas Eve with you. And it's this. I want you to see with me briefly God's glory in Messiah's birth. And I'll tell you where to find it. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet shall he come forth unto me, God says. He doesn't say, come forth unto thee, unto you. Jehovah is speaking, and speaking, and he says he will come forth unto me. Agreeable to the plan and purpose of God, his plan to save us from before the world was in order to do the Father's will and work by fulfilling the law to perfection that you and I had broken so that God the Father might be glorified by a sacrifice for sin that glorified all of the perfections of God, satisfied his justice, showed his mercy, demonstrated his grace, Show that he is a savior in almighty love. Do you see? The savior came forth for you, yes. But he first and foremost came for the glory of the father. We think he came for us and that is so true. But first God says he came for me. Christ came to bring glory to God his father. And when we read in verse 3, therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. God's promise seems, do you hear the word seems? Seems to fail. It seems as if God gives his people up, but no, no, no. Until the time of the birth, God is in control. With the trouble, with the trials, in the calamities, God is in control. Roman armies occupying Palestine, raising up Augustus. Why? God would bring glory to his name. For me, he says. And the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. 
It is for me. It is for my glory. To be gospel, it must bring all glory to God. Man can take no credit for it. If you are redeemed and saved and just in the presence of this holy God, it is because it was all of grace from first to last. And you and I contributed not one thimbleful of merit to it, for we had none. You are saved because God determined to send his son for his own glory. You are saved because God is glorifying himself and saving sinners. You are saved because God sent his son to Bethlehem and then to Calvary's hill. So that we might sing the glory, Lord, from first to last is due to thee alone. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy crown. Our glorious surety undertook to satisfy for man. And grace was given us in him before the world began. So I ask you on this Christmas Eve, in the midst of all of the busyness, will you make time to meditate upon these things? When you look at your babies and children, will you think of the baby, the child? Will you lie before him Will you see that our problem, our problem is self-exaltation, that you and I are dependent on God for all good, that redemption is God's plan to restore us to offering him praise and glory that is due unto him? Have you in your heart robbed him of his crown? Who of us has not? Do you see now that the whole point of Christmas is God's plan, to use the words of Jonathan Edwards, that God should appear full and man and himself empty, that God should appear all and humanity nothing? That is the way of God to us. It is the way of his glory. It is the way of sovereign, free grace. It is the infinite, 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 infinite way down of the second person of the Trinity who assumed human nature and went to a cross for our sins. That is the way to the merriest of Christmases. You will have, no matter what your troubles may be, you will have the merriest of Christmases when you hear this message in your heart and you remember that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And God's people said, Amen.